Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> For those of you that are mothers, you know that there's a lot more truth to that than uh, meets the eye, eh? <laughs> well, it's good to be here. We are very excited, Nancy and I are, and um, uh, we're moving up this week. I know several of you have asked questions, and we will be moving up on Thursday, so uh, we can't wait to get moved. Our house is being dismantled in Littleton, and it's no longer a home. It's now just a house, and uh, so we are eager to get the transition done and get moved up here. So I just wanted to give you a short update. Last week, I introduced a concept which I called Brave New World, and the idea being that um, at the fall, the world just was devastated in every way that you can think of. Destruction, sinfulness. You look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and you see that um, people, humanity just descended into this really black mire, dark mire of horrible sin. And all the sins that we have today all came about during those early days. We've just found more creative ways of expressing them, internet, things like that. But the same roots are all go all the way back to the beginning. And in the middle of that, God began to just shine this pen light, the coming of the kingdom. He began to just expose this darkness and began to take steps to correct it. You may remember from last week that at the base of Mount Sinai, out of the Exodus event, is where they begin to learn from Genesis, Exodus, and the rest of the Pentateuch, the truth about the world around them. Prior to that, they did, knew very little about the world. So God spoke into their lives and helped them to see the reality. And the, what I talked about last week was how easy it is for us to, uh, because we don't have a good sense of what truly is right and wrong, we get confused easily, and how easy it is for us to... Um, not understand ourselves very well. The example I used was you wake up and there's a fresh snowfall and you come outside and you see the sun rising. And I can see some of you already remember the the metaphor, the example. And uh, the sun's refracting off the snow, so you see the beautiful colors and the icicles. And then you hear this retching sound and you look down at at your feet and there's a homeless person laying there. And uh, perhaps the beard's all matted and they um, haven't bathed in quite some time. And they're laying there and not really aware of what's going on. Where do you see God the clearest? The scriptures tell us that only one of those two is made in his image. It's a human being laying here. It's not creation. And that was meant to be an encouragement to you that in your most broken state, wherever that happens to be, hopefully for all of you, it's behind you. When you are at your worst, you still image God better than creation. So that's the first thing that they learn. One of the other things they learned I want to talk about today is they learned about gender, male and female, something brand new that they didn't know. You know, you're uh, familiar, I think, with a popular book a number of years ago now, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, right? Well, if you ask any of the men in the congregation, they'll tell you that book is mistitled. It should be Men Are From Mars, Women Are From uh, a different solar system we've yet to discover and no idea how to get there. They're really strange and foreign to us. I told the uh, women's ministry last week when I met with them, I felt like I was in foreign territory, speaking a language I didn't understand. We're talking about sharing with one another and eating quiche, and that's not language I'm used to, you know? (laughs) What's on for football? So uh, we're very different from one another, and why is that? Why did God make us that way? Genesis introduces this idea, and what I'd like to do with you today is take some time and work our way through the Bible. So there will be a couple of points at which I'll have you stop and read a text with me. 
but I'm going to take you on a flyby from Genesis to Revelation and begin to take a look at this whole concept of gender and how critical it is and why is it important. So right off the bat, Genesis 1.27, a very famous verse. I suspect most of you have heard it throughout your lives. Genesis 1.27. So God created human beings in his own image. Isn't that great? By the way, no other gods of the ancient world use that kind of language. None of the other religious systems even talked about us being made in his image. So God, the one true living God, created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Wow. We just were introduced to a very novel idea in the ancient world that gender is tied to image bearing. How? That's what we've got to figure out. You see, in the ancient world, they didn't think that way. Well, there's plenty of other creation accounts aside from our creation account. They have some things in common, but they have some things that are different. This is one of the places where they're different. In all the other ancient accounts, the gods are the sexual beings. So you had the male gods and you had the female gods. Right? You probably remember that from your high school days. You have the Greek gods and the Roman gods and Zeus and all that. And you had the male gods and the female gods. And we weren't that important to them in the creation account of all the ancient stories. Humans weren't that important. The gods, all the focus was on the gods. So when God said that he made us in his image by creating us as male and female, that is a new and radical idea. And I don't know what it would have been like for the Israelites who just came out of a, a Rome, I mean, a, an Egyptian theological system with an Egyptian pantheon of gods to hear that, wait a minute, I'm made in the image of God. Not only that, but it's because I'm a male or a female that I'm made in the image of God. This is hard to understand. What do you mean by this? We begin to learn, as I said last week, that we are the centerpiece of creation. That we are the, um, we're the high point. And that's very different from every other ancient story. Our, gods, uh, our God loves us. Our God uh, wants us to rest. But they're not like the ancient gods. Work harder, work harder, work harder. Our God said, no, 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 you work hard, take a break. We'll call that the Sabbath. In fact, that's what you're created for. When you move into the New Testament in Hebrews, you see that we're made for shalom. We're made for rest. We're, our souls are made to be at peace, not turmoil. And so um, we begin to learn all this, and we begin to learn that all of this creation was made for our enjoyment, to ref- so that God could find numerous ways to reflect his glory to us. But at the heart of it is you and me. We reflect the image of God to each other better than any part of creation even in our worst states. You may remember that discussion. Well, we're not going to look in too much detail in the garden, but there are a couple of points in the garden. One is um, that the image of God does involve us ruling in partnership, men and women together. Look at the very next verse in 28. Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There's a partnership here that's being created in the garden. By the way, chapter 2 unpacks this. The whole chapter begins to talk about how was Eve even made and what were they supposed to do, which is something else very unique. God wanted to make sure you didn't miss it. He made male and female in his image, and gender is part of that image bearing. So chapter 2 expands that whole idea and gives us the details of how it happened. 
So in the garden, we have a complete partnership and there's no mention of submission. There's no hint of, of subjugation or hierarchy, none of that. We work together. In fact, the very word that God chose uh, to use to call the woman, I will make for Adam a helper, the older translations say a helpmate, is a word that God later on chooses to use for himself, many places. And he says, I am a helper to Israel. I am a helpmate to Israel. So we know it doesn't have ideas of hierarchy. What it has is rather a much more wonderful idea of completing what is lacking in the other. So God completes what is lacking in Israel. Husbands and wives complete what is lacking in each other, which is the whole genius behind being made in uh, male and female to reflect the image of God together. So it's a wonderful story. And then you know the rest of it. Boom, the fall, they ate the wrong uh, from the wrong tree, and the world is devastated beyond description, total destruction in every way that you could measure from a moral perspective. So this begins um, this incredible journey. Eve was told in Genesis 3, after the fall, God gives her a little bit of hope. You may remember as part of the curse, he gives this uh, wonderful news that your seed will destroy this enemy. So picture it from Eve's perspective and Adam. I don't know what it's like to be in complete union with God. No fear, no insecurities, all the things I live with, and I suspect you do too. Um, doubt, struggles, it's just perfect. And then you take one bite, everything changes instantly. Uh, I have this knowledge I wasn't designed to have, and all of a sudden I'm living in fear. Insecurities come to the surface. What's the first thing they do is hide. They're afraid. I don't know what that's like to go through that transition. And in the middle of that, he says, uh, your seed will destroy the culprit, the one who made this happen. So what do you think Eve thought when her first child was born, Cain? Here it is. Here's the one. What a surprise when he turns out to be a murderer. What a disappointment. What a tragedy. Right? By the way, the children up here, I'd like to say thank you, a special thank you to the mothers of these children. These children are being shaped partly because of who you are. And we said thank you to the children, we applauded them, but thank you to all the mothers and grandmothers out here who had a role in helping these children become what they're becoming. Can we just say thank you to them real quick? I suspect none of you, I may be surprised, none of you, your first child was a murderer. I, I can't imagine the disappointment, the emptiness inside, um, the tragedy. But this began the quest for the son throughout the Old Testament. Every Israelite woman um, wanted to marry and have children. That's partly why the whole childbearing thing became so significant, because they knew that one of them was going to give birth to the one. We don't know who that one is. That's why for a woman who was barren, like Sarah, it was a dishonorable thing. It was a shameful thing because, uh, again, I'm, I'm good at guys' metaphors. Forgive me, women. I'm not very good at women's metaphors. But if they were barren, they're taken out of the game, so to speak. They're not even allowed. They can't even participate. And so for a woman to be barren was to be considered cursed by God. And they all wanted to participate because they knew that, I mean, it's almost like the raffle. One of you is going to give birth to the one. 
I suspect, just as an aside, that Mary was quite surprised that she was the one because she said, I'm not worthy of this, Lord. So all throughout the Israelite history, the Old Testament, you have this quest for the son. It's not that women and girls were not important. That's not it. That's one of the ways that Israel began to distinguish itself from the rest of the nation is that women really had value. The rest of the nations, they didn't. But right out of the bat, right out of the chute, at the fall, everything, everything crumbled. And uh, all the things that are important to God fell. One of the things that was devastated was the value of women. Women were considered property immediately. And so we need to talk about that. What happened to that? And so as we move through the Bible, you're going to see two things happen. You're going to see, number one, that God begins to honor women. It's a very steady process. We can map it out from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. Or more importantly, the order that the scriptures were written. You can see God beginning step by step to exalt women, to honor them, and to redefine who they are within a broken world so that they really image God very well and reflect his glory. The second thing which automatically happens because of that is, men, the way we respond to women has to change, naturally begins to change. And we were going to go along on that ride. And as God makes a move with women, we have to respond differently than we did in the past. We don't, to us, the idea that women are property is absurd. But yet back in the Old Testament times, that was a very common thing. That's the way they thought. And there's some very troubling passages that I could show you where the men thought that way because God had not yet overturned that value. So we're going to do a kind of a survey here through the Bible. Let's just say a quick word about Sarah because she exists before the law. And what happens in the Old Testament, you begin to see kind of how I vision it. Women, they just pop up out of nowhere and they start doing amazing things. Sarah's one of the first ones. What do we know about Sarah? Well, first of all, she has her own servant. Remember her name? Hagar. What's unusual about that is women didn't own servants. So right off the bat, we capture a glimpse. Remember this pin light coming in? It's a brave new world. God begins to change things and address things. So Sarah, we learn a really quick piece of information about her. But let's move under the Mosaic Law because a lot of fascinating stuff about women there. The very, and by the way, what's important is what is said about women and also what is not said about women. For example, submission is never talked about. Roles, hierarchy, it's never discussed. In fact, Jesus never discusses it. So when we get to Paul's use of that language, we're going to have to look carefully at what he's saying there. What does he mean by that? It's not like he's introducing this universal concept that's never been discussed before. So what does he mean by that? Very little is said about gender role distinction or hierarchical relationships, men over women, all of that. Very little is said about that. Patriarchy, where men rule and men are in charge, is assumed, but it's never commanded. In fact, it's very little discussed about it. That's just the byproduct of what happened at the fall. So the first real glimpse we have of women really rising onto the scene occurs in Numbers 27 with the daughters of Zelophehad. I'm just going to tell you the story. You can write it down and go read it later. To me, it's a hysterically funny story. They're my heroes. Now, picture the scene. They're, uh, They're on this side of the river, and Moses is going over the law with them. And they haven't crossed over into the promised land yet. Remember, Moses is going to, God's going to take his life on this side. So he's reading the law to them and explaining all the provisions. In Numbers 27, he's talking about the inheritance provisions of the law. And he said, here's the law that God gave. If a man dies, 
the land passes to the sons. If there are no sons, it passes to the uncles. The land was given to the man's brothers, who are the son's uncles. The land was given as a gift by God. That's how it stays within the tribe. So the five daughters of Zelophehad kind of scratched their head, and they go to Moses and said, we don't like this. This isn't fair. What about us? So God, our Moses, being the courageous man that he is, goes back to God and said, God, the daughters of Zelophehad are complaining because they don't like the inheritance laws. So God says the most amazing thing that we never hear from any other God. They have a valid case. So let's change the inheritance laws. So from now on, if a man dies, the land passes to the sons. If a son dies, if there are no sons, the land passes to the daughters. If there are no daughters, it passes to the uncles, the brothers of the father. The amazing thing about this is that they haven't even carried out the law yet. They're on this side of the river. So God changed the law before they even had a chance to enact it. Anybody seen Pride and Prejudice in here? Let me see your hands if you're familiar with the story. Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. That story, uh, 18th, 19th century Great Britain, is based on the original inheritance laws. They missed the revision, the update. The women were not allowed to own property. And so that's the tragedy behind that story, that they missed the update in Numbers 27. Well, it didn't stop there in Numbers 36. At the end of the book, these same daughters, um, um, the, men of, uh, the men of their tribe, are assigning husbands for them, arranged marriages. And the five daughters, uh, they said, wrong. We're going to marry whoever we want. We're not going to let you tell us who to marry. And so they, the men come to Moses and say, we, these troublemakers, they won't marry the men we assign. So Moses goes back to God, and God says a second time, they have a valid case. Let them marry whoever they want. So there's two examples where they changed cultural customs and they changed the law before it was ever enacted because these five daughters stood up with courage. They're my heroes. They're some of the heroes of Scripture. All right, then we move from there to Proverbs 31, and I actually want you to turn to Proverbs 31. That's a, um, a very well-known passage, and I want to just read through it with you and highlight some things that are often overlooked. Sometimes when a passage becomes so familiar with us, we miss small details. Proverbs 31, it's the very end of Proverbs, beginning in verse 10. Now, Proverbs is set up where they, they have this tension be, between um, wisdom, what is wise living, and what is unwise living. And so the author of Proverbs, especially in the beginning, Solomon, he creates these two metaphors of these two women. One of them is this beautiful madam. She is, uh, she's wonderful. She's a lady. She characterizes wisdom. But the other one is this horrible slut, this whore. And she characterizes sinful living. Those are the two metaphors. So at the end of the book, we have this discussion here from King Lemuel, who writes the second half of the book, on what does a wife of noble character look like? And it's astonishing in this part of the world. Verse 10. A wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her women servants. Okay, pause. This part of Proverbs 31 is often quoted. All right, because she's taking care of the home. So this is a very famous part of Proverbs 31. Pause. 
She provides portions for her women servants. That's an astonishing idea. Women are still property at this stage of the world history. Women didn't have servants, but this woman does. And she's held up in high esteem for that. She considers, verse 16, a field and buys it. Okay, pause. Doesn't say she talks to her husband. Doesn't say she consults her husband. It says she considers a field and buys it out of her earnings. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Small details. This is startling. This is, we're beginning to capture a glimpse. Think of it that we're looking at culture from God's perspective, and he highlights this particular type of woman and says, I want you to understand what is really good here as we get rid of the, the broken values of culture and begin to heal them. Verse 17, she sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. He's now beginning to apply traits which were, which were good traits applied to men to a woman. This is a hard worker here. She sees that her trading is profitable. See it? She has her own business. Her trading is profitable, and her lamp does not go out at night. She's up all night working. Those are traits that, are, that were typically ascribed to males. And now they're being ascribed to this woman of virtue. In her hands, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Pause. The heart of the Mosaic law was to care for the poor and the needy, the marginalized. James says that in the New Testament. This is true in undefiled religion, that you care for widows and orphans. And here she's the one that's being told, I mean, this describing to her, she opens her arms to the poor, she extends her hands to the needy. She's fulfilling the Mosaic law. This is a wonderful thing. It's slowly we're beginning to see that women have a role to play in the kingdom of God. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. And whenever Nancy says, why are you watching football while I'm cooking? I point to this verse. So the husbands are sitting and the women are working. <laughs> now, the truth is, he has a very respected position. He's probably a judge. So he sits at the city gates with the other judges, the elders of the city, and people come there with their uh, their tensions and their disagreements and have them resolved. And so she's a hard worker. She has her own business. She buys land. She sells it. She takes care of the poor and needy. She's working all night. She's taking care of her family. It's wonderful. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. These are attributes that are typically ascribed to males. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. Okay, pause. This is language used throughout the book of Proverbs to show that she's teaching God's word. So she's a teacher on top of it. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Okay, here it is. Catch the summary. Honor her for all that her hands have done. She has her own business. She's teaching. She's fulfilling the law. She's making money out of her profits. She's buying more land, more business. Honor her for all that her hands have done. Let her works praise her at the city gate. 
So let her own testimony praise her. This represents a shift, cultural shift in thinking. Her identity is no longer found in her husband. Her identity is found because she stands as an image bearer before God. Her image is now identified. Her, her identity is now identified with the way God has made her, not defined by her husband. Let's keep going. Many other women occur under the law. You have Miriam in Exodus 15. She's called a prophet, a gift typically reserved for males. Uh, in Micah 6, she's called a leader. In other words, uh, I'm in another role that is uh, typically ascribed to males. Judges 4 and 5, you have the whole story of Deborah. She functions in this, in Judges 4 and 5, as high, Israel's highest leader. She was the top. Her leadership role included the exercise of authority over men. She was both a prophet and a judge in, a, in Judges 4 through 6. Judges 4, I mean, excuse me. She directed the military plans and the strategies against the Canaanites. She led the army, so she was a general. She led the people in worship and victory celebration before God in Judges 5. These are all, character, these are all uh, roles and skills that traditionally were ascribed to men. And she's honored and held in high esteem for that. Then you have the stories of Esther, Ruth, Rahab, and we go on and on and on. I just wanted to highlight a few to show that we've moved a long way now from back here and just after the garden where women become property and are treated brutally. So by the time you get later into the law, women are starting to appear. God begins that process of, of exalting women and highlighting that so that we can see that trajectory of what's happened. Scripture offers no evidence... Listen carefully. Scripture offers no evidence that the Israelites rejected a woman's leadership on the basis of gender. No evidence of that. In fact, it's just the opposite. Israel acknowledged the authority of God-ordained women with the same respect as they did God-ordained male counterparts. And we capture a glimpse of what's coming with this. Now let's move to Christ. Everything begins to change with Christ. It, 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 it's like pushing the accelerator to the floor. Okay? You want to take off. The church does. Jesus' dealings with women went contrary to the cultural norms of the day. What was introduced in Israel now begins to move out into the rest of the world through Christ. And remember, Jesus is the fullest expression, the expression of the one true living God. The one true living God expresses himself in his son, Jesus. So whatever Jesus says represents the norm. He viewed all people, regardless of gender, as persons, equal. No discussion, no treatment in any other fashion. He touched women. He was not afraid to be touched by women, even those who were ritually unclean, the woman with the issue of blood, which made him unclean. He wasn't bothered by that. He freely associated with women, even of those of questionable morals. I think of John 8, the woman caught in adultery. Or Luke 7, the, uh, the sinful woman, Luke says, <laughs> who's washing his feet with perfume. And uh, Simon, remember the Pharisee whose house he was at? Um, Simon says to himself quietly, if Jesus, obviously Jesus isn't really uh, anybody important because he would have known who this woman was. She was a sinner. And so he's letting himself become unclean by her washing his feet. So Jesus 
being Jesus, recognizes what he's thinking and says, Simon, let me tell you a parable. And the upshot of the parable is, she washed my feet when you did not. And that's a major insult in the first century world. When you're a guest of a home, you wash someone's feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. It's a sign of showing refreshing and welcome. But yet she did. She poured a perfume over my head. She's treated me with more honor than you did. And, and he shames and embarrasses Simon. He's not afraid of this sinful woman who's an embarrassment to the Pharisee. The whole structure of the clean and unclean under the law begins to disappear with Jesus. He begins to touch dead bodies, Jairus' daughter. And he's not afraid of being unclean. So that whole paradigm is beginning to move away with the coming of Christ. Aren't we glad? Aren't we glad? Uh, I'm so thankful. Christ never discusses, discusses submission, and he treats women as equal with men every step of the way. In fact, um, in, in John chapter 3, he discusses the secret of eternal life and being born again with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, the highest of the high in Israel. Very next chapter, John 4, he goes to Samaria and, and presents the secret of true spiritual worship that the Spirit becomes like water that wells up and begins to overflow and gush out of us. Okay, that's what's coming. That's a secret that they didn't know about. It's a, myth, a mystery. He presents that to the Samaritan woman. Now, what's amazing is John says that it was necessary for Christ to go through Samaria. Whenever John uses the word, it is necessary, he's saying it was a theological necessity to fulfill God's will. Because the Jews never went through Samaria. They always went around Samaria because the Samaritans were half-Jews and they didn't want to associate with them. So not only does Jesus deliberately go into Samaria, he deliberately sits at a well where he knows this woman's going to come. So first of all, he's talking to a woman, which is in itself very countercultural. But it's not just any woman, it's a Samaritan woman. But it's not just a Samaritan woman, it's a very unfaithful, broken Samaritan woman. She's had five husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. And you know what? Jesus never shames her. He just exposes her, like we talked about in Job three or four weeks ago. He just exposes her. The man you're living with is not your husband. And what does she do? If she had felt shame, she probably would have hidden, but she didn't. She goes back to her village and says, I think I have found the Messiah. He knows everything about me. That is the heart of true relationship, is that we know the worst about each other and we love each other anyway. That's what God brings. That's what Christianity brings. And if we live that way in relationship, why wouldn't the world want to become part of it? Right? Jesus knew the very worst there was to know about her, and he wasn't ashamed of her. And so she goes back and tells everyone, I think I found the Messiah. She didn't go back with shame. So it's an amazing thing that he tells this messianic secret of spiritual worship, this mystery to a woman, a Samaritan woman. He honors Mary and Martha in John 12. That's among his close friends. He identifies them. He's not ashamed to be with women. He begins to reveal that men and women relate to each other, and this is the way we're designed to relate to each other on levels other than just a sexual level. And in fact, it's in our gender and our differences is where the image of God is seen clearest. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. He taught all people, uh, he taught that all people find their true identity in God rather than males, which is a cultural shift. 
So you see how he's beginning to challenge cultural norms of the first century? And, uh, and he's got the accelerator pressed to the floor. He included both men and women equally in his illustration. Rabbis never did this. So half of his parables involve women. You know, the woman who lost the coin, the women who, you know, you can go back and look at the parables. Rabbis never did that. So he's really demonstrating this whole idea of how men and women are equal. Um, he was countercultural in that he included women among his followers. The rabbis never had women among the followers. It's just not the way they did things. In fact, in Luke 10, you have the story of Mary and Martha. Remember that, where Mary took the initiative to sit at the feet of Jesus, and Martha gets upset about it? It's not because she was cleaning and Mary wasn't. It's because Jesus had just committed a cultural faux pas. The language that Luke used suggests that uh, he had done something that the rabbis never did. It says, she sat at his feet. She became a student of his teaching. The same language used by Paul in Acts 22, where it says he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. So the rabbis would take these men, and they would sit at their feet. Women weren't allowed to do that. And so Jesus, I suspect, was the first rabbi who broke those rules. Women are equal with men. In fact, if Jesus was the first one to allow it to happen, Paul very well may have been the first one to put it in writing. Because he said in 1 Timothy 2, let a, let a woman learn silently and submissively. Now, what you and I hear from our cultural vantage point is silent and submissive. But that was language used between the rabbis and the students, male students. So Gamaliel would take men, and he said, men, here are the rules. You are to learn silently and submissively. And so when Paul says, let a woman learn silently and submissively, it's actually bringing women up to a status equal with men. Very countercultural. Very countercultural. Um, the Gospels reveal that this countercultural aspect um, was not accepted by everyone, including his own disciples. In fact, in the John 4, when the Samaritans went out to grab food and he was talking to the Samaritan woman and they came back, they were astonished. What are you doing? You know better than that. This is an embarrassment. I think Jesus just smiled and said, you have a lot to learn. So Jesus began to overturn the traditional views of um, women in the home by giving them an active role in the mission of God, which is what we are about. Women have an active role in the mission. This reveals something brand new. The old order has ceased. New relationships have begun. All right, so let's look at the new covenant, the coming of the Spirit in Acts 2, and from then on, what happens? If the accelerator was pressed to the floor before, we just supercharged it. Everything changes. To begin with, there's this entirely new paradigm presented. The gospel radically alters the position of women, elevating to a level of partnership unseen in the first century world. You have Peter, starting in Acts 2, revealing that your sons and your daughters would prophesy and dream dreams. Those are, those are functions reserved traditionally for males. In fact, we have uh, Philip's daughters who prophesied. Women and women, uh, men and women equally shared together in prayer and the experience of the fullness of the Spirit. They preached together, they together preached the word of God with boldness in Acts 4. Women are gifted equally with men by the Holy Spirit and are treated equally with men in the exercise of those gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. If anyone, in Greek it's a neuter, which means that it could be anyone. If any person has um, a gift, a, a prophecy, let them speak. In Ephesians 4, he says he took captives, uh, he took captive captives and gave gifts to people. And he uses a specific word to talk about humanity. 
men and women. This is one place where a gender-sensitive translation helps us. By the way, that's a reversal of uh, Psalm 66, where it says he took uh, captive captives and he received gifts from people. The way it traditionally was, I'm the king and I oversee and I protect all of you. So I go out and I protect you and I conquer a more realm which makes us all richer. And then you all give me gifts to honor me. And he reverses the language and says Christ took captive captives and he gave gifts to people. That's a reversal of what leadership is all about. Leadership starts with the idea of servanthood. And Jesus introduced that. Complete change in the, in the worldview at that time. As a senior pastor, I'm, I'm the chief servant. That's what my role is. And Christ is the one that begins to shift that language. And he gave gifts to people. What are the gifts? Apostles, prophets, pastor, teachers, evangelists. And we have examples of those gifts in the New Testament. Wherever the gospel went, women were the first among, uh, among, the, con- the, first among the converts. You have Jerusalem in Acts 5, Samaria in Acts 8, various cities of the Roman world such as Philippi, Acts 16, Thessalonica, Acts 17. When you go read the missionary journeys of Paul, you find out that women were always present at the very beginning. That's unusual because in social settings, in an assembly of gathered people in public, women weren't invited. And all of a sudden, they start to appear. By the way, the word church is not a unique or special word. It's just the word ecclesia, um, which, which means a public gathering. So if the Masons get together, that's a church. It's an ecclesia. If the, you name any civic group, when they got together, they were called an ecclesia. So the uh, apostles, they, they co-opted this. They took this language that they used in the first century world to say, we're a church. We meet in public. The difference is we allow women. And that's unique. Women are fully present at all the assemblies from the beginning of the church. Uh, a Jewish synagogue, in order to be started, required 10 men. You couldn't start a synagogue without 10 men. Uh, but yet, in, in uh, Acts 16, with the Philippian church, Paul goes down to the river where the women are washing clothes, and he shares the gospel and starts a church with women. So the whole characteristic of how you start a church shifted. It's how you start a group. Ultimately, in Galatians 3, Paul affirms that in Christ Jesus, there is no male or female. That's the ultimate expression of this whole concept of image-bearing. That male and female, as we relate together in equality, in partnership, that's where God's um, image is seen clearest, right there. And in Christ, there is no male or female. All right, now you can imagine that this created all kinds of new cultural issues, right? So the authors of the New Testament had to address these broken cultural values and provide new insight in what it looks like. I'm going to use one as a test case. Ephesians 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 5. Very well-known verse. Ephesians 5, verse 21. I'm just going to point out a couple of things, and we'll close with this test case. Often, uh, I've heard it at weddings, it starts with verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. The problem with that is that there's no Greek verb there, to submit in verse 22. In fact, I think there's probably some New American Standard Bibles still in the pews. If you look there, you'll find that in italics, which is the New American Standard's way of saying there was no verb there. It's called an ellipsis. That's a rhetorical device. They leave out a verb on purpose. Why do they leave out a verb? Same reason we do when we're telling stories, because we want to point you someplace else. So when he says, wives to your husbands, your first question is, what does that mean? You go back one verse, and that's where you find the verb. 
and you have this brand new idea and culture, submit yourselves to one another. Submit yourselves to one another. You see, in the first century world, thanks to Aristotle, we had these, uh, this household code where men are over women, uh, parents are over children, masters are over slaves. And the words they used to describe them is the one on top, the man has, has authority over the woman because she's property, and the woman therefore has to obey the man on top. Paul did not use any of those language with the men and women. He did use it for the rest of the relationships, parents and children, slaves, masters, but he didn't use it with men and women. He took out that language and replaced it with mutual submission. Phenomenally new idea within the culture. It's a broken culture. Your property, I can do what I want with you. And you say, no, mutual submission. Mutual submission. Then he does something very interesting. He says, uh, the husband is the head of the wife, is Christ, is the head of the church. And so what he does with that, he kind of quotes this idea that was fairly common in the first century. And he says, therefore, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, when you go back into the language of the first century world, that's not the way they thought of it. Uh, the head could do whatever he wanted with those under his authority. And so Paul, not to make a pun, he turned it on its head. All right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Name one thing that Christ did in his own best personal interest. Nothing. 100% of what Christ did was to exalt the church, honor the church, and sacrifice everything for the church. That's the new model. That's what headship looks like. Complete surrender. For everything you do is in the best interest of your wife, husbands. Okay, now, one more point. Back up to verse 17 or 18. Verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery or wastefulness. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Passive voice, allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit. He's talking to the church here. These are all plural commands. So you, church, allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit. And here's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And he gives five, now I'm being technical here, five participles. The first one is speaking. Remember a participle or a gerund, I-N-G word? Okay? Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing, making music, giving thanks to God the Father always, submitting to one another. Those are the five things that define a church. If we practice that as a church, speaking to one another, singing in our hearts, making melody in our hearts, giving thanks always to God the Father, and submitting to one another, why would the world not want to be part of it? This is the ultimate expression of what it looks like to be involved in the mission of God, to reach the world so desperately in need of love. Right here. So what Paul was doing with the language of submission, he's not introducing a new idea. He's, re he's redefining and correcting a broken cultural value where women were property and under the authority of men. It's not true. Not true. We stand equal before Jesus Christ. You're part of the kingdom of God, women. You have an equal role to play in every way. One of the questions I got asked all the way through the last week was, what's my view of the role of women? And I said consistently, I think that's the wrong question. I, I personally don't care what role we as a church pick for women. What I care about is two more subtle ideas. Number one is, do the women in our church feel honored? That's a critical thing. And number two is, are they influential in decision-making? That's what's important to me. Do we have women? Do we have women 
in the process that can influence our thinking. Because then we're partnering together in the kingdom of God. So do you see how God, over time, exalts women and begins to break that ironclad grip that the curse has on culture and society? All right, to close, please stand with me. I want to close with one of Paul's very famous benedictions. And now think about it in the context of what we just talked about. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him, that's God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, i.e. reach this culture for his glory. He's able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church. Men and women serving side by side enjoying the fruit of image bearing. In the image of God he made them, male and female he made them. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week.